Hey everybody, Ryan here, and you are listening to The Poison Lab. Today, we have another episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet. I couldn't be more excited to bring you this episode with our special guest, Dr. Howard Greller. If you've spent any time listening to medical podcasts, you probably already know that name. Or maybe you know him as And Howard, the nickname he garnished from his podcast, The Dantastic Mr. Talks and Howard. Or you might know him as Ho-G, the nickname he has on the Sirius XM Doctor Radio Emergency Medicine Show. I really couldn't imagine a better guest for our show. Dr. Greller is a practicing emergency physician, medical toxicologist, and addiction medicine specialist in New York City. He completed his emergency medicine residency training in Philadelphia and completed a medical toxicology fellowship with the New York City Poison Control Center. He's made numerous significant contributions to the field of toxicology. He has over 24 peer-reviewed publications, ranging from cognitive outcomes after lead exposure to managing opioid use disorder or the effects of inhaling coral vapor. Did I mention that he's also the author of the Lithium Chapter in Goldfranks? He is an inexhaustible medical educator. He writes educational articles for the Talks and Hound, and he was the longtime showrunner of the Journal of Medical Toxicology podcast, as well as his own podcast, The Dantastic Mr. Talks and Howard, which is one of my favorite podcasts. So you might hear me nerd out a little bit on this episode while I grill him on his early career in medical media. If all that weren't enough, he also does an excellent job of sharing our medical stories with the community. He's a contributor to the Washington Post and is the co-host of a weekly emergency medicine show on Sirius XM Doctor Radio. I'm just so excited to bring you this guest. Now, as per usual, if you're just here for the cases, go ahead and skip to minute 22. Otherwise, just keep listening. We have a great time talking about his early career. Then we'll dive into cases and finally questions about drugs. We cover some great topics, like why the respiratory rate in the chart is always wrong just exactly who is making poppers, and we even cover some interesting COVID testing techniques. Okay, and before we jump into our disclaimers, I do want to apologize to the audiophiles. We had a bit of a technical error before the show and weren't able to record our voices separately, so we had to use a few different audiophiles to piece everything together. There may be a few spots where everything sounds crystal clear, as if we were in your very own living room while you were listening, followed by a few spots where it sounds like we're on Mars. I'm sorry in advance, but this show's about the content and not the clarity of our sultry podcasting voices, so I hope you will forgive us. It's one of just a few errors that happened during this show. In fact, if you listen really closely, you might hear me refer to an emergency department as an emergency apartment. I think I'll take whatever we have here as a win. Okay, I don't want to keep you waiting any further, but here are our standard disclaimers. We're going to be answering questions on the internet from people who may be trying to use drugs for the wrong reasons. Anyone using illicit drugs is exposing themselves to risks of potential contaminants, wide dose fluctuations, and toxicities of the drug itself. While this gives us a medium to explore toxicologic concepts, we are not advocating for anyone to use illicit drugs. If you are struggling with substance use, call 1-800-662-4357 to access the SAMHSA free helpline and get the care you deserve. Second, we're going to be talking about real fatalities, and while this allows us to discuss a lot of great learning points, some of these substances were ingested intentionally. If you or a loved one are struggling with thoughts of suicide, someone's there to listen. 1-800-273-8255 is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Please call. Finally, even though we're going to be discussing medical management, treatment, and diagnosis, we are not providing medical advice. If you think you're being poisoned or you have a general health care question, 
call your primary care provider or reach out to your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Now, let's get on with the show. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And we are so honored today to have a very special guest in-house with us, well, over Zoom. An inspirational physician and educator and someone whose work in the field of education and podcasting has, has really left a space for this podcast to grow. So I couldn't be more excited to welcome on Dr. Howard Greller. Thank you. I'm, I'm a civil toxicologist, not the Dalai Lama. Well, you know what? I'm going to let the listeners be the judge of that. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us. And for the listeners, we had a technological meltdown before the show. I wasn't sure if it was going to happen. Uh, so thank you for jumping through these hoops to yeah. ensure we could actually record the show today. Of uh, course. It wouldn't be a podcast unless there was a technical error. I think there was a solar flare. I think that's, that's <laughs> a little background on Dr. Greller. This is the part where I'll probably embarrass him. <laughs> and, but I'm just stunned at this mile long resume of just impressive accomplishments in toxicology and education and medical media. You're a practicing emergency physician, medical toxicologist, addiction specialist, numerous important publications in the field of toxicology. Uh, you're a writer. For the Tox and Hound blog. I'm a big fan, by the way, of the urine drug screen post. Thank you. You have a very creative way with words and make everything very easy to understand. And this, of course, comes out in the podcast that you've been making. And then beyond just your work as a medical educator, which I don't even, I don't understand where you fit more time in, you are the weekly co-host of the Sirius XM radio show, Emergency Medicine on Dr. Radio. Uh, which I believe you just what you you did today. just got back from. <laughs> yeah, so I hope you yeah. were on voice rest yesterday, so that you know you wouldn't. Yes, you wouldn't. A lot of whispering, hot tea, a muffler around my neck. Well, the voice sounds great, and thank you. And on top of all of these things, you're also a parent during COVID yes. in New York City. <laughs> yeah, so. that that's definitely the most challenging of my jobs. I imagine that does add a variety of challenges. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. This show, uh, listeners, as you know, we're going to do our standard discussions. We're going to talk about some questions about drugs from the internet, and we're going to go through some cases of fatal poisoning. But would love to really ask you a few questions about your fascinating career in medicine and toxicology. So, sure. Uh, if you don't mind. How did you become interested in toxicology in the first place? Uh, it's a great, you know, like I think many people that sort of go into emergency medicine, you're drawn to the variety. And one of the things that I found was that I kept on finding myself fascinated by not only people who had very clear overt toxicologic problems. So overdoses, substance use, things like that, but also really the, the biochemical mysteries of people that had 
for lack of a better term, therapeutic misadventures. So like, you know, grandma who's now on 17 medications and is now in the hospital and no one knows why. And that kind of, you know, the, the mysteries and the problem solving, the detective work, that was the kind of stuff that, that got me going. And it was really exciting. And then I also had really um, influential mentors. So when I was in medical school, I went to medical school at NYU. And so I had interactions regularly with, you know, Louis Goldfrank and Louis Nelson and Bob Hoffman. And then when I went to my residency program, I was, you know, surrounded by Fred Henredig and Kevin Osterhout and G. Marie Perrone and Francis DeRoos. And so all of the people that had the biggest impact on my education and my you know, decision to become an emergency physician were emergency physician toxicologists. And so my, you know, I, I kind of look back on it now, like I was fated to, to do this because I was just <laughs> surrounded by people like that. Um, but it was, it was just something that also just the subject matter really, really just excited me. And um, I was really, really excited to, to pursue that. For the listeners, yeah. some of those names, uh, Goldfrank, Nelson, Hoffman. I currently have a book propping up my laptop. It's called Goldfrank's uh, <laughs> Toxicologic Emergencies. And many of those names are plastered on the back of the book. So truly people who have done a great job of influencing uh, toxicologic practice and clearly creating uh, brilliant toxicologists. And, and that's something I hear over and over when I ask this question. It's the mystery. You know, where are these symptoms coming from? And being able to peel back the layers. Yeah. I mean, and the other the other aspect of it, it that I think and when I when I speak to different learners is when we talk about medicine, capital M, right, the the tool that everyone uses is in the name. We use medicine right? and understanding that how you use the tool, why you use the tool and understanding the tool better, I think, is so important in terms of not only getting the outcome that you want, but also protecting from the thing that you don't want. And so that's that's toxicology, right? right? So it's the interaction of something with the body and its normal physiology. And when that physiology goes, goes bonkers, that's, that's where we come in. Yeah. And you step outside of that therapeutic window. And, yep. Uh, Never well, step outside I mean, of windows. Defenestration is bad. Yeah. Not good. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you've had really a fascinating history. I mean, great career in toxicology, but then also in broadcast and media, um, such as, uh, I, I, I'm going to have a nerd moment here, but I think Dantastic <laughs> Mr. Cox, or potentially the JMT podcast, which I believe yeah. you were involved in, it might have been like one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. I think it was like, I was, I remember being a resident, I was in my PGY2 and EM for pharmacy, and I was listening to all these talks things, and I was, I think I was flipping back and forth between Serial and the JMT, uh, <laughs> the JMT toxic uh, podcast. So, would you mind talking a little bit about how you came into doing not Dantastic Mister Tox, but also the the JMT and kind of what your drive was for those? Yeah, so the history of that's really interesting. Well, it's interesting to me, not to any of your listeners, I'm sure. But the um, when I was. Um, you know, I don't remember how many years ago this was now, but I was on the editorial board of the Journal of Medical Toxicology. 
And one of the things I'm kind of generationally, I'm spanning kind of, you know, a generation that didn't have computers and technology and then kind of did. So I span a little bit of both. And I've always been a little bit tech oriented because my my dad was a, a computer programmer before there was, you know, the internet and things like that. So you, I've always had a finger. First camera. You, you helped bring everyone to the, to the technology. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, definitely an early adopter in a lot of ways. And so as part of my role on the editorial board, we were trying to come up with ways of attracting readership and to getting people the information that we had in the journal and disseminating it appropriately. Um, going to pause for a second to allow the siren to go past. Oh, no problem. <laughs> Part of podcasting in New York City. Is, uh, yes. <laughs> if, you listen, if you listen to any of the Dantastic Mr. Talks, uh, there is one point at every episode where my dog barks. So <laughs> it's <laughs> just part and parcel of it. Um, so we were trying to come up with ways of promoting the journal, promoting the information inside of it, and to just kind of find a different way of of engaging the readership. And so Dan and I were uh, on the board together and uh, became friends. And we said, you know, how about this thing called the podcast, which most of the people didn't understand or know what that was. And they said, okay, we'll put something together and, and we'll, we'll take a look and see. And so we wound up putting together this rambling two and a half hour (laughs) stream of consciousness (laughs) recording, which was absolutely terrible, but, they loved it. And so then we, we worked on it and we basically put out an episode with every issue of the journal for, I would say probably six years and, um, kind of went through and highlighted the things that were interesting. And through that kind of developed our rapport. And once we got to a natural end after doing it for so long, um, we decided we handed it over to a new group and then decided to do something on our own, which to be completely honest, we went through, I think four or five different concepts, ideas, podcasts, where I have hours and hours and hours of outtakes and other hosts and other things before we settled on Dantastic Talks. There, um, there's an unreleased like, vault. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. I got to talk to Taylor Swift about, you know, how to release that stuff. Well, I mean, I've been a big fan of those shows for many years, and I really appreciate the content you. that uh, you have put out, uh, and also creating a space for toxicology to talk about toxicology. I think there was clearly a need that you guys filled expertly. Thank you. Beyond the podcasting, which I love, and I can't wait for the 20-year anniversary release of all the secret tapes, um, <laughs> also moving into more medical broadcasting like Sirius XM Dr. Radio. Um, I'll, I'll admit I tend to be more of a local radio person sure, because I like to hear what's going on in my area. But then I was like, well, if I'm having Ann Howard on the show, I, I need to listen <laughs> to this. And um, I listened to at least three episodes of, doc- of Emergency Medicine Dr. Radio beforehand. And I love it. It is so great the way that you, you guys. I mean, I love the questions you guys get and uh, yeah. the ability to 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 talk with the public as well as other. You know, a lot of medical professionals are calling in. So, how did you get involved in some of these other media outlets? 
so yeah, I mean, a lot of this is just sort of serendipity. Um, the person that I do it with is Dr. Billy Goldberg, who, when I was a medical student and did my post first year summer, like, I don't know, internship between first and second year medical school, I volunteered in the ER for like this research um, rotation for lack of a better description. And he was a brand new attending in the emergency department and we met and became friends and just sort of stayed in touch, you know, throughout the years, throughout my fellowship. And when I came back to New York, uh, for fellowship, we reconnected the, the origins of Sirius XM. I don't really know or how Dr. Radio came about, but that show was the first show on the Dr. Radio channel. And, Billy was the first host. Um, and in fact, coming up in two weeks is going to be the 14th anniversary. I heard. Um, yeah. yeah. And so it's amazing. So he started doing the show and about six months in, I saw him at a mutual friend's birthday party. He's like, why don't you, why don't you come by and hang out and we'll talk, you know, like we normally do. And I did, and I never left. <laughs> well, thankfully you didn't. It's such a fun show to listen to. The questions that come in, it's really fun. <laughs> I had my first, I guess, more dedicated radio experience last week, actually. They did a an hour, uh, an interview on our local Wisconsin public radio about the Poison Lab. Awesome. Which then um, kind of warped into talking about poison centers, and they accepted public callers. So that was my first time uh, getting to jump into the realm of answering questions on the fly. So, you know, people were asking about methanol and, and um, hypersensitivity reactions to chlorine gas and all these things. And it's like, I really had fun doing it. It's, it's so much fun talking. That's the best part about the show is getting the, the talking to the public, because as opposed to sometimes the stuff that we do in the emergency department, you don't have that same freedom to have as casual discussion because you're being pulled in a million different directions. And, you know, this is kind of a reflection of, you know, an old office where you can just sit and chat in a unpressured, I mean, except for the, you know, the clock that segments the show, you can sit and have a conversation about people and really answer the questions that potentially they didn't get answered. So um, it's really, it's one of my favorite things I get to do. And I'm, I'm really, you know, consider myself very lucky that I have the op opportunity to do that. Well, I think we're lucky that you're on that show because listening and hearing you distill some of those complicated topics uh, down to really understandable language for people, for people who aren't really familiar with healthcare in general, or, you know, physiologic principles or medicine or the inefficiencies of our system. Uh, you know, it's really, it's great to listen to. So. That's a lot of practice. We step in it a lot. Just in the few episodes I heard, there was I heard a lot about uh, COVID therapeutics as well. So I commend you <laughs> uh, on your yeah. Facebook. You seem to talk yeah. about that a lot. Yeah. Well, in my state, we have yeah. this, this quarterback who uh, mm. he's got his own ideas about those as well. I actually that was one of my first news things that I ever had to do was a thirty second segment about ivermectin and. Ugh. How, you know, in science, effects need to be reproducible under multiple observations and shouldn't have all of the data redacted uh, later. Yeah. 
but you know, so I've spent a lot of time um, learning how to engage with with people who are hesitant towards the medical system and believe in other other therapies that some people are very good at convincing them are, are effective. So I, I give you a lot of credit. Listeners, thank you for letting me spend some time asking some questions I, I'm interested in. Uh, and I think everyone else would be interested in, in your history as well. But perhaps, oh, can I ask one more question? Did, yeah, of course. Did you, were you a comic in Los Angeles? <laughs> So um, I did a lot of uh, a lot of uh, comedy during college, and then after college, I took some time off, and I moved to LA, and I did improv and stand up um, for a little over a year before I went back to go to med school. Um, so That's yeah, it was right. fun. For you, I suppose instead of yes and, it's yes and Howard, right? Yes and Howard, exactly. That's perfect. Exactly. Wow. Get a tattoo now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I think those skills have certainly served you well. And thank you again for coming on and lending your expertise to the show today. For our listeners, I think we're finally going to jump into our normal programming. So, listeners, as you know, on the show, uh, we split it up generally into about two segments. The first one is uh, toxicologist versus the internet. Uh, actually, oh, I'm sorry, we flipped the script. We actually do that one second now because we did a little poll and many listeners said they wanted to hear cases first. So, oh, okay. I think um, we're going to jump right into some cases, and then we'll talk about uh, the toxicologist versus the internet, which I think is a lot of fun. Um, but the cases, so these are real cases uh, sourced from usually the American Association of Poison Control Center fatality reports. The goal of this is for people to be able to hear someone's toxic differential as they are presented with a case of maybe an undifferentiated poisoning. And trying to figure out what that toxin is based off of their clinical presentation. And hopefully so uh, any medical listeners out there can be aware of how to identify this themselves if they're ever confronted with such a patient or uh, in, for the public to just be aware of the potential toxins that do exist out there. So the only rules are we can't give away any antidotes that would tell us exactly what the poison is. And that's essentially okay. that. And, and we can't give out the poison. So, <laughs> Um, would you like to start? Do you want to read me a case and I, I can show you how? I yeah, sure. I can, yeah, that's perfect. All right. So let me see. I have a couple here. Um, uh, I have to full disclosure. Dr. Yes. Did send the cases to me beforehand and I realized it and I, I deleted them all right away. So I, to the audience, scouts honor, I have not read 99% of these cases. So yeah, I also I also went back after I made that unforgivable mistake, and I pulled some more. Oh, perfect! All right, good. just so not, just in if, case. If I succeed, we will know it is all my own uh, <laughs> intuition, and if I fail, it is also all my own. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so this one uh, I think I won't, I won't give anything away. Uh, a nineteen-year-old who basically collapsed at home was brought by EMS to the emergency department, uh, was intubated, unresponsive when they arrived, GCS of three, pupils fixed mid-range, um, was apparently re-intubated, because I'm not really sure what happened with the airway. Okay. Vital signs, um, profoundly tachycardic in the 140s to 150s, hypotensive in the 70s over 30s or 40s. 
um, and remain that way after some initial pharmacologic interventions for that. Hmm. Okay. I, maybe I could touch on just a little bit of what I'm initially thinking. Can I sure. ask, when you said they collapsed at home, I know we don't have this information, yes. but were they just standing at the kitchen and then collapsed or are they found down or we don't actually know? Yeah, this was this was basically uh, seen last normal by parent um, probably within 20 minutes to a half hour. Oh, okay. And then, you know, the other person in the house heard a you know, thump <laughs> and then they were, they were found down. Interesting. So somebody, I can just kind of walk through a little bit here, you know, an immediate collapse followed by tachycardic and hypotensive. Yes. So when yep. I think yep. of that, I think of, well, in part, sometimes beta two agonism um, or, or beta agonism where we can see tachycardias coupled with hypotension, uh, you know, Sympathetic toxidromes, usually we see tachycardia and hypertension. Um, so this seems more like maybe something that caused a primary arrhythmia. Do we know what the QRS is on the EKG? Is this like a super wide QRS tachycardia? Yeah, so there was a QRS of 120 milliseconds. Okay, so we have a wide QRS, tachycardia. Uh, you know, if that's monomorphic, we're heart rate 140 to 150, this could be like VTAC. And that could be causing the hypotension. Um, I know I would probably, if there's a known ingestion, this guy's going to be getting some bicarb, well, actually some hypertonic sodium to try to fix that. Now I'm thinking of things that within 20 to 30 minutes are going to make you collapse. Um, you know, one thing that jumps to my mind is dust off. Um, if you're huffing dust off, you can, uh, these are halogenated hydrocarbons usually with uh, fluorinated. And these can cause acute dysrhythmias, which could be VTAC that would lead to hypotension. So I don't think I know enough yep. right now. Fixed pupils, who All knows right. what that is, but uh, this right. is my first start. All right. So the patient, uh, they noted the widened QRS. They gave some boluses of sodium bicarbonate, which led to some narrowing okay. of the QRS down to mid-90s. Um, and then they started to get some laboratory data back, uh, which <laughs> this, this is where, me, where the money many lies. Yeah. So the initial blood gas had a pH of 6.9 with mm -hmm. a PCO2 of 38 and a PAO2 of 153. Bicarb was 37 with a base X of 26 uh, mm. and the lactate was 20. He had a lactate of 20. His bicarb was 37 and his base excess was 26? I'm sorry, 3.7. Three, 3. Did I say 3.7? Okay. I was like, wait a minute, something sorry. doesn't match up here. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Profoundly sorry, sorry. acidemic. Missing the decimal point. And yes. I got metabolic acidosis. Okay. I assume. I mean, a lactate of 20, you must. Okay. Uh, well, lactate of 20, anytime I hear a lactate of 20, I think cyanide. I also think Sometimes metformin associated lactic acidosis, but that's not going to cause this. He's not somebody who takes metformin and then went into AKI or somebody who intentionally ingested a large amount of metformin. Um, are there any other labs? Potassium? It is not listed here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Not listed. Hmm. Well... I mean, obviously, this pay, he, he's got a severe lactic acidosis. If we're running down the, the 
potentials here. There, there's quite a few. I mean, you can also get a severe lactic acidosis from being in severe shock, having a low blood pressure and this high heart rate, but yeah. up to 20 is pretty high. When we see it that high, I usually think dead gut or toxins. Right. And with this high, so now I'm thinking of things that can maybe uh, prevent cellular utilization of oxygen, which is where we tend to see shunting of pyruvate into lactic acid instead of acetyl-CoA. So I'm thinking maybe sodium azide, cyanide itself, which I don't know. I don't know where, who has cyanide at home? Did, well, did he grind up a, <laughs> did he grind up a bunch of apricot kernels? Sure. And, and, and ingest them? Cause you can have uh, amygdalin, which gets uh, metabolized to cyanide in the body from apricot or, so, or certain pits of, of stone fruits. Or, you know, phosphine, I think, actually uncouples. So he could have taken zinc phosphide. That uncouples uh, oxidative phosphorylation, too. So I guess, yeah. is this a suicidal intent? It is a suicide intent, yeah. And, and you nailed it. I mean, it's, it is it's cyanide that was purchased oh. on the Internet. Oh, but, um, but and, you know, the other sources of cyanide, like you said, you know, they have to always, one of the things I think we always have to think about is, people's occupations or the occupations of people around them. So, you know, jewelers and people that work in electroplating and things like that, uh, electronics sometimes can have cyanide, depending on whether or not yeah. they're doing this at home. And then other sources, like you said, that, you know, the prunus species that have pits that contain amygdalin, but there's also acetonitrile, which artificial nail remover yes. um, has cyanide as well. I believe that metabolizes into cyanide, acetonitrile? Correct. Okay. Yep. The this person had purchased cyanide salts online, and this was a suicide attempt. Ugh. So, the amount of toxic things people can purchase on the internet is kind of befuddling. A little tragic. It's, it's amazing. I remember a paper called "Poison by Prime," where they go through and categorize all the incredibly toxic substances that are available on Amazon. I hope something gets. I hope somebody sees that uh, in the Amazon headquarters, but who knows. <laughs> uh, Jess, if you're listening, yeah, <laughs> paging Bezos. Uh, yes, we're on a first name basis. So, did he did he get hydroxycobalamin? Got multiple doses of hydroxycobalamin, so three doses with some improvement in vital signs, um, improvement in the blood gas, and however, remained hypotensive even after three doses of hydroxycobalamin, um, mm. and being on maximum doses of norepinephrine and dopamine, right. um, and then a head CT that was performed in a little bit of a delayed fashion showed diffuse subarachnoid hemorrhage and poorly differentiated gray-white matter, so they basically um, withdrew care and Yikes. patient expired. Any sodium yeah. thiosulfate? It doesn't list that as a therapeutic that was given. Ah, that makes sense. So for the listeners, cyanide, there's, there are, the most common reason we're treating cyanide is actually house fires, um, yeah. but you know, it's a well-known toxin to be poisonous. So that causes some people to seek it out if they have unfortunately self-harm intent. Our, our treatments, we actually have a few, which is, you know, we don't actually have that many treatments for all that, all that many poisons, but cyanide, we have hydroxycobalamin, which actually combines mm -hmm. with cyanide in the body to make cyanocobalamin non-enzymatically, which is really important. So it happens almost right away and yep. it's super helpful. Which is cool. I think there's, you know, this is an example of some of that elegance in in biochemistry and in toxicology that we see. So you take a poison, you add an antidote, and you make a vitamin. And I always, I find that to be so, 
because you're making you're making vitamin B12. So I, this is not the way that I re- recommend people getting supplemented with B12. But <laughs> it's, it's it's maybe a something. little But yeah, it yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it, it's it's clinical biochemistry, and it's such a cool concept to think about. And yeah, the effects can be really profound on a patient. You can see a big increase in blood pressure after hydroxycobalamin. But then our other antidotes we have sodium thiosulfate, which Cyanide is metabolized in the body to thiocyanate, and it does that by combining with thiosulfate. It does this via an enzyme called rhodinase. So this is enzymatic. It takes time. You have to combine thiosulfate with cyanide with an enzyme, and it takes a while. So it's not necessarily the first thing that always gets reached for because it doesn't work immediately, but that's another thing we can use. And then the last antidote, which is a little, I don't know, controversial, is inducing a methemoglobinemia. Right. Cyanide, negatively charged, loves positively charged things. It actually binds to positively charged iron in our mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation system. Yes, cytochrome AA3. So you can oxidize the iron in your blood, making it very positively charged, a.k.a. inducing a methemoglobinemia, and then ideally the cyanide attaches to that iron in your hemoglobin instead of the one on your electron transport chain. Yeah, it's. I, I think the controversy really comes from the fact that, again, as you said, most cyanide exposures that we see are from house fires. So house fires, you have this complicated mix of stuff that people can be exposed to in the in the smoke and gases that are produced. So a lot of times you already have someone who has thermal injury. You have someone who has smoke inhalation. So you already have one kind of hit to their getting oxygen. You probably already have some degree of methemoglobinemia induced from, you know, inhaling multitude of different compounds. And they're probably already sick and an extremist. So one of the things that the nitrates do by creating a methemoglobin, they also cause hypotension. So you're going to take a patient who's already an extremist, give them hypotension and create further oxygen carrying deficit, maybe to offset a little bit of the cyanide. So, you know, I, I think that in someone like this, who is also, you know, who doesn't have that oxygen carrying problem, they have hypotension. So I don't think that giving them a nitrate is really going to make that much of an impact um, yeah. on a cyanide. So, And they, uh, uh, they, I guess they don't have other hemoglobinopathies already. There's no CO bound on there. So yeah, you could, it, right. it certainly seems to be. Right, CO is another. I, I think that when you look at the animal studies, you really have to it's been a while since I looked, but I felt like you had to push the the med hemoglobin to like thirty or forty percent sometimes to really get good binding too. So there's a question of efficacy too. How really yeah. effective it is. Yeah. I mean there was I think a lot of the antidote kit stuff came from a study, I think it was in the late sixties by Way, W A Y, where they basically they took mice and they poisoned them with cyanide and then they gave them combinations of antidotes. It's sort of like the combination that prolong the survival of the mice the longest was um, oxygen, bicarb, thiosulfate. Um, I think that was it. Um, and probably something that induced the methemoglobinemia, so the nitrates. Yeah. So, you know, and that's where that's where that Lily kit, the original cyanide antidote kit 
I think got its um, start. Yeah, the way, and then they had the amyl nitrite. They used to keep amyl nitrite in the uh, fire chief cars, um, so that they you know, <laughs> if it showed up to a fire scene, they would wave amyl nitrite under the nose of a victim to induce the the menhemoglobinemia. But those those amyl nitrites kept disappearing for some reason. Also, Poppers, yeah. Talk so here to keep you nerds up to date on the terms kids use these days. For any listeners not aware, popper is a slang term for inhaling or huffing alkyl nitrites for euphoric effects. Now back to your proper popper podcast. There's a great article that was in, um, I think it was BuzzFeed, probably in the last year, about the person who makes poppers. <laughs> the, the title, hold on, I'm going to find it one second. Okay, I'm going to send you the link so you can put it in the show notes. But the title of the article is This Man Does Not Make Poppers. And he basically, <laughs> that's what he makes. Um, it's an actually a fascinating little history of sort of this industry because it's it's used as a sexual enhancer. Um, yep. Uh, and um, that's why it often disappeared. Um, for an antidote, it does make a little methemoglobinemia. But the one problem in a lot of these cases is that the, in order to use a popper, you got to be breathing. Right. If you're not breathing, you're not gonna not gonna work. So yeah, I actually got a sample of poppers that we got tested. Uh, we had somebody go into a cardiac arrest from using poppers. Oh wow! So we sent we we like went on a goose chase trying to find what was in this this um, nail polish remover, which is it's they call it acetone free nail polish remover, and it says right, it right, amyl nitrate. And I found that a lot of the the over the counter poppers that people buy. Uh, they come from like one manufacturer in Turkey. So maybe that person's not making poppers, but somebody else seems to be. <laughs> uh, anyways, well, great case. I think a lot of good points to talk about there. Um, and I'm I'm going to give a ding. I'll, I'll take, I think my, my overall guess would have been cyanide. So I'll give hey, myself a half it. point. All right. In the interest of time, I, I don't want to keep you too long. Are you ready for a case? Sure. Yeah. Always. Okay. Oh, so we have a 16 year old female who presents to the emergency apartment nine hours after taking a hundred tablets of a medicine that she found at home in a self harm attempt. Oops. She presents to the emergency department due to the development of vomiting that occurred about three, two to three hours after uh, taking the medicine. On arrival. Okay. Physical exam, uh, relatively normal, actually, uh, or they don't document much. Blood pressure, 125 over 102. Heart rate, 64. Respiratory rate, 26. And oxygen saturation is 96%. AFEBRA, so pretty much stone-cold vitals. In the ED, she was pale and lethargic and endorsed bloody diarrhea. She mm. An abdominal x-ray showed numerous... Radio opaque discoid shapes, which we will assume to be tablets. <laughs> okay. Gastrointestinal tract. Do you want labs or do you want to take a quick? Is anything? I just I'm gonna I'm gonna start a little bit with this before the labs because so there are a couple things that stand out right away besides the dramatic clinical presentation. So. The delay is, I think, important between the ingestion and the onset. So I think nine hours is, uh, you know, enough time for absorption. And even if there's something that needs to be metabolized to the active 
component. That's something. Um, in terms of the vital signs, there's one thing I want to, I want to, uh, it's become a pet peeve of mine over the years is that a respiratory rate of 26 is not normal. That's, that's so, a very good point. <laughs> and it's not picking on you. It's, it's, it's picking on all of us in medicine is that respiratory rate has become sort of the, you know, the forgotten child of the vital signs. And, you know, a respiratory rate of 26 is not something that physiologically you, you can maintain with comfort. Um, uh, so, you know, most hospitals have a particular, I call it the respiratory multiplier. Right. So you are either you're an 18 hospital or you're a 20 hospital. And what yeah. you do is you measure one breath and then you multiply it by the, the multiplier. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty consistent with what I see. I got that from Richard Wolf, so I can't take credit for that. I, I don't pay attention um, to it because it just never is correct. That's my yes, because I just assume it's the multiplier. And that's exactly and that's exactly the thing is any any toxicology patient, I mean, any patient in general, you should actually look at the patient. We're not, you know, we're not all built of ultrasounds yet, but you should actually go to the bedside and look at the patient. And one of the things that you can do very, very easily is visualize their respiratory effort, which is not only the rate, but it's also the depth. And I think that that gives so much information because a lot of the things that we deal with either modify your respiratory effort or create conditions such as a metabolic acidosis that then modify your respiratory effort uh, as a compensatory mechanism. So in this situation, you know, a young person with a large ingestion who's now tachypnic, at least, and now is having bloody diarrhea, one of the things, and then something that you can see on x-ray, one of the things I'm going to think about initially is iron. That's going to be a big one that um, I'm going to be worried about and that the respiratory rate is going to be a reflection of an underlying metabolic acidosis. That's where, that's where I'm going to start. Would you like the labs? Yeah. They have an underlying metabolic acidosis causing a respiratory <laughs> acidosis. So we have a pH 7.3, PCO2 of 19. So absolutely. And they did check a lactic, which was elevated to 6. Okay. And I can give you a little bit more here. So she was started on a redacted antidote. Whole bottle okay. irrigation was initiated due to ingestion uh, history and the radioopaque foreign bodies. Okay. Within hours, she became more lethargic. Uh, repeat ABG showed worsening acidemia. She was intubated, flighted to a tertiary care center. Um, and actually... Uh, on arrival, uh, they repeated an x-ray. She had cleared all the tablets, but she progressed to life-threatening liver fit. Well, liver failure, AST, ALT in the thousands, ammonia of 700, INR of 8. That's that's a high ammonia. Uh, she yeah. had hypotension requiring vasopressors. She developed hypoglycemia and remained intubated and unresponsive, getting some therapies for coagulopathy. But uh, she was actually eventually listed for transplant. And then... Okay. But then actually recovered, but unfortunately, and on day 12, she developed a lower GI bleed and a bowel perforation, and unfortunately died Oof. due to complications of trying to, to fix that. But Oof. So any further thoughts, I guess, on what our toxin could be? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of different things. Again, the timing of it is, is interesting. Um, 
I, I think that from the perspective of, you know, developing this rapid uh, metabolic complication, the diarrheal illness, and then hepatic hit, you know, you can think of some of the antimitotic agents as well. Um, so, like, you know, methotrexate, uh, ultracine, uh, you know, diarrhea, metabolic acidosis, especially bloody diarrhea with radio opaque things. I mean, you know, metals of other ilk, um, I think you, you said pharmaceutical tablets. So that's why the first place I go is iron. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are also metal salts that could be readily available in a medicine cabinet. So, you know, lithium is something shouldn't give you necessarily bloody diarrhea. Um, what other therapeutic metals? Like, you can certainly some supplements, uh, potassium, um, could be something that could give, uh, similar although you would expect to know about the potassium as well yeah Yeah. um is there any one of these you'd like to to i'm gonna put my nickel on on the iron and howard wins a nickel today everyone (laughs) (laughs) the initial gi diarrhea vomiting right away there are some texts if you read they you know basically if you don't vomit within six hours you won't become iron toxic uh yeah so she had initial GI symptoms, and then, uh, so iron is a caustic to the to the gut, and really we see a lot yep. of problems with that. And then when it gets absorbed, it just oxidatively destroys the liver. Uh, so we see liver damage, and then you see all sorts of progressive shock and hypotension from um, either from directly from the iron and also from liver failure. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, this iron's an interesting one also because it you know, there's a long history of exposure and people talk about, you know, toxicology, we often try and put together descriptions. Toxidromes are one example of this, but we used to talk about phases of toxicity. And there was always this discussion of the quote, quiescent phase, right? right? So we're quiet, where the quiet referred to, they're no longer having vomiting or diarrhea, but they're metabolically falling apart. And, and so it's not really... It's clinically maybe a little bit quieter, but from the perspective of the patient, they're really in in bad shape. So I think that's why those kind of classic descriptions have gone by the wayside. Yeah. All of those, those are always just anything that's a liver toxin. Tylenol, Tylenol, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Or, well, death gaps. Yeah, I mean, they're just quietly sitting there while the liver fails. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for her, this case, awesome. really tragic. Also, another example that some of the most dangerous substances are just over-the-counter ones. It blows my mind. Yeah. Tylenol, salicylate, iron, all things that can really wreak some havoc. And um, her initial iron level was in the 4,000s. Oh! When she presented. She she was started on defaroxamine, which is okay. a chelator. Uh, and then within 12 hours, I actually had her iron level down to the hundreds, which I found mind blowing. Or it wow. might have been twenty four. I don't know if I buy that timeline. It seems pretty aggressive. Yeah, that's really fast. Um uh and defaroxamine, an iron chelator, causes the urine to turn vinrose as they call it as the iron. <laughs> so my understanding is that they used to give you defaroxamine when they couldn't measure levels very well, uh until your urine was no longer vinrose. That was the Although it's it's not something that is always as clear as looking like a uh, you know a Bordeaux 
kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, and and deferoxamine is is also a a therapy that has some some natural limits to it because the higher you go on the rate, the more likely you are to induce hypotension. And yeah. so you have to be you have a patient who again, like we were just talking about with cyanide, someone who's already having consequences to their hemodynamics from their ingestion and now you're adding a therapy trying to fix that but you're also potentially inducing hypotension and so that's you know it's like dialing in the radio uh to get the right the right spot yeah and that's why a lot of times we'll start uh at a lower dose and you kind of yes crank it up slowly yeah uh the other thing this one is i think this is probably a board question somewhere in the world (laughs) definitely on an in-service there is an infection you can get with deferox i mean i don't think it developed in this patient but yersinia enterocolitica is an infection it's a a uh, bacteria that actually like thrives on iron and basically the deferoxamine just serves it up to them uh chelates it away so that they can they can eat it and you can get yersinia sepsis while so if they spike fevers you maybe get id involved (laughs) when that's happened definitely fascinating yeah. okay it's not a z-pack it's it's not a <laughs> um i guess do we even have time i i think we could try to squeeze did you want to try uh another yeah. case okay i mean you can you can edit out enough of my nonsense that oh no, no. fit in I'm, this is <laughs> there's no unreleased vault for the poison left. but maybe we'll do two quick cases we we can just uh We'll keep it more concise. Okay. Lightning uh-huh. round. Okay. I'll make this one, one. I'll make this one really quick for you. Okay. Okay. So a seven-month-old uh, presented uh, to the emergency department crying with uh, a little bit of cough and vomiting and developed um, somnolence and some upper airway findings some wheezing some retractions a little bit of respiratory distress oh no hydrocarbon or tide pods <laughs> perfect yeah so this one this is a laundry uh pod um Ugh. yeah yeah i hate these I and hate this these. is a fatality ca- oh no a seven yeah months. yeah so all the um, this must have been pre I, I wonder did you source this from pre-2015 Yes. Okay. So one of the great movements in toxic is that one of the North yeah. American Congress of Clinical Toxicology conferences, we were presenting all these cases of Tide Pod, uh, you know, basically deaths or horrible outcomes. And every toxicologist with a Twitter took to the, the internet and started tweeting at Tide to maybe put in some child safety proof locks for these candy colored hydrocarbon bombs. Uh, yep. and, and I think they have done that. But I don't know if it's really have changed. And I do think we see maybe less of them now, but I, I don't have the actual data. But yes. Yeah. There was a, there's a lot of uh, trying to figure out exactly. So there are two problems with these. Number one, like you said, there's a little bit of caustic nature to them. But the other thing is that the membrane that contains the detergent um, has some kind of content that leads to profound and rapid sedation that yeah. No one has ever been able to elucidate because the companies won't release their proprietary information. Foxylated alcohols, I think. Were yeah, something. Car- yeah, just weird stuff that we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
anyway, but yeah, so then bad. these children would aspirate. They get a horrible pneumonitis. They need, you know, airway um, support, and they can develop ARDS and some. Yeah, it can be bad. Good. Yeah. Good case. All right. Well, I'm gonna. I think I earned a nickel. Um, <laughs> Perfect. This one I think is at least worth talking about. So, uh, ooh, which one? No, we're gonna do this one. Okay, a 32 year old male presented seven hours after taking two handfuls of a medicine and drinking alcohol. So he presented to the emergency department okay. seven hours after taking two handfuls he'd been drinking and took some medicines in a self-harm attempt. Past medical history, alcohol use, and depression. Okay. ED, anxious and tremulous, although no clonus or hyperreflexia. Uh, his vitals were notable for tachycardia and hypertension, and he was given a benzodiazepine uh, to kind of chill that out a little bit, and he received some fluids. Um, laboratory findings. ABG was actually normal, everything normal. Tylenol salicylate okay. negative. He did have an ethanol concentration of 53, uh, or 0.05, whatever. And then a urine drug screen was positive for benzos, THCs, and amphetamines. Okay. His anion gap is normal. Hmm. Chest X-ray negative, EKG, heart rate 87, QRS 84, QTC 425. So nothing abnormal there. And, hmm. and his presenting complaint was what? Uh, that he did something to harm himself. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's why he should have. Uh, his mental status started to decline and he quickly had a seizure. Huh. We're about eight hours out now. He was intubated. His QRS increased to 186. Ooh. Sodium bicarb drip was started. He became hypotensive, requiring vasopressor support. He was on multiple vasopressors, had an LVAD placed, interestingly. Echo showed dilated cardiomyopathy. Whoa. TRT um, was initiated. He developed refractory shock. He was given intralipid emulsion, no improvement, and he actually died. On day three, he rested. So, okay, wow. All right. So, initial presentation shortly after the ingestion, normal, and then you said nine hours afterwards he had a seizure. Yeah, that could be a lot of things. Um, You know, certainly, certainly the thing that if I had to pick one toxin that would make me, you know clench and be worried about delayed presentation with seizures would be a sustained release bupropion. Um, Who's got a nickel? (laughs) I hate this drug. I really do. Um, And, and and here's the thing. This is solely, solely from my perspective as a toxicologist, because I know that there are probably thousands and thousands of people that are helped with multiple different issues with this agent. Hey, it's Ryan. Sorry for interrupting the show, but Dr. Greller is making a fantastic point, and it's something I've been meaning to bring up. Toxicologists disproportionately see the risk side of the risk-benefit ratio of medicines due to the nature of their consults. And the show is about toxicology, so the focus is primarily on complications from medicines and not necessarily the benefit that some patients get. In past shows, we've talked about ADHD medications, certain stimulants that can occasionally cause increased arrhythmogenicity or sympathetic toxidromes. And we've gotten feedback from listeners saying 
that some ADHD medicines were instrumental in creating a flourishing life for them. There are absolutely people who gain enormous evidence-based benefit from being placed on some of these therapeutic medications. This show is not about creating stigma around using medicines for legitimate medical need. So I just wanted to clarify that. We are talking about the risk side of the therapeutic window, but there are benefits. So just keep our perspective in mind when you listen to our discussions. Okay, back to bupropion. But as a toxicologist, this one is 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 in my you know top five of things that I do not like to hear about intentional ingestions. Really, yeah, so hard to manage. And yeah, it, it, there there's toxicity from number one. It's almost exclusively delayed products now or extended release yep. products. So you know people people will show up looking okay, um, and then they progress to seizures and very difficult to treat cardiac effects. It is now yep. the number one, uh, I just checked the last annual report, it is the number one most fatal single antidepressant in the United States. So and we get three times as many calls about them as TCAs. Um, so it's really, uh, it's prevalent now and it's very dangerous. So it Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of indications. So, And I, I feel like people aren't always aware. So it, it, it can be a tough thing to treat. It's a gap junction blocker that... Causes really difficult to treat arrhythmias. It's in the same chemical class as bath salts. It's a cathinone. So it's actually it's a, cathinone, pharma- yeah. a pharmaceutical bath salt that people are taking and causing horrible arrhythmias and delayed seizures. So uh, for the any EM folks, just realize this one can be a toxic time bomb too. So even if they look okay, this one might need some some delayed monitoring. But, yeah, I mean, this is, this is one that if... In a reliable history, I would consider decontamination in someone who's completely normal. Yep. Um, and and it, you know, I, I do not do that lightly. But this is something once they start to go down the tubes, they're really difficult to manage without heroic measures. Um, and so it's potentially really, really, really bad. We don't really have therapeutics for it. Yeah, we we've had multiple of these on ECMO just in the last year. And, and it's still yeah. hard to do it. You can't enhance elimination. Well, it's too protein bound. So it's, unless yep. you got some miracle things hanging around. Oh, this patient was whole bowel irrigated, just like you mentioned. So be aware, everyone. Be aware. Uh, thank you for, for running through these cases. I think we talked about really some, some interesting treatment aspects and some, some very classic toxidromes that might present. Okay. Are you ready to jump into the next section? We got enough time to do a couple questions. I think it'll be. Yeah. So the next part we're going to do is called Toxicologist versus the Internet, where we will be sourcing questions from reddit.com slash r slash ask drugs. As our yep. guest described this place, one of the darker corners of the Internet, <laughs> <laughs> which he's quite correct. So here we are to shine a light on it. And hopefully provide some good science, some some interesting uh, discussion in the context of toxicologic considerations around questions that people really have. Uh, can I read you some of the questions that I'm not going to ask? I just thought they were. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the very first question I picked, it's called meth and anxiety. Question mark, 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 exclamation, exclamation. <laughs> and right. I don't know that that's really even a question. But then he's, or they say, I know this causes anxiety. Is there any way to help? And 
I chose this because the answer I thought was interesting. Somebody says, you're looking for a sugar-free bag of sugar, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, That's brilliant. I think they're putting quite nicely that, uh, yeah, you, there are no free lunches in biology. You're not going uh, yeah. to get to use that substance without potential for provoking anxiety. But I thought that was interesting. I saw a lot of chatter on the boards about new uh, cannabinoids, one called 10-F-ABD, just to remind okay. you that there's there's all sorts of synthetic cannabinoids. Many, still many, many. Still out there. And uh, my other question that I'm not going to read, I'm not going to pose because I don't want to know the answer, but it was, do pharmacists actually know anything? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I laughed. I read their story. They had a plight that they had been dealing with. I understand. And they're... <laughs> Sometimes the yeah. system can fail us. I know, but I thought it was funny. I hope some do, you know. Anyway, so those were the funny ones, but we're not going to talk about those. We're going to try to dive into some real questions. So uh, yeah. I have one here that I'll, I'll, I'm going to pitch to you, and I thought this was a good one because it's pretty relevant. So one of the users on the board was uh, asking, what are the most common substances used to cut drugs with? And, you know, do they impact someone's... Well, they're high or they're health effects that they can cause. So, Dr. Grelick. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, I'm trying to think of like where to start with this. Right. You know, the pharmaceutical industry cuts drugs as well, right? So, that's, <laughs> I, I think that that's something that we should understand in that when you take your pill of whatever you're taking, acetaminophen, salicylate, or whatever, the, the amount of drug that's in there is what the dose is, depending on their, its kinetics and its release formulation. But to make up the rest of the pill, there's stuff, right? Starches and colors and, you know, parts of the release mechanism. And, and so the acetaminophen you're taking, depending on the form you're taking it in, is cut with other things. So it's not, it's not just illicit substances that are, are, are participating in this. Um, when it comes to, you know, elicits, there are multiple reasons why someone would cut their product, both from a standpoint of, you know, avoiding, um, detection, um, from trying to spread out or, uh, you know, make the supply last longer, uh, enhance the impact of taking the drug, right? I think there are things that, you know, you can sort of break it down into two different categories. There's something that would be more of a, uh, an adulterant. So that's something that's active. Um, and then something that would be more, I guess, best, better described as kind of a, I don't know, diluent always makes me think of liquid. So it's not really, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's diluting out a bulking. the thing and it's not, it's not a bulking. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably better. Um, so, you know, it's, it's to, spread out the supply, make it last longer, right? So if I can, if I can, if I have X amount of heroin and I can now make it two X, then I can make double my profits. And there are so many different things that are used. Um, certainly there are things that we, you know, encounter commonly amphetamines and things like that, but then there are other things that, um, have led to problems, uh, as we've seen, with a lot of uh, cocaine supply. Um, and then there are things that are 
I'm not quite sure what the rationale behind them are, but like fentanyl, fentanyl is showing up in everything, right? Yeah. So it's showing up not only in other opioids, but it's showing up in cocaine. It's showing up in uh, pills pressed to look like um, you know, benzodiazepines. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's been looking or uh, put in things like, you know, if there are even case reports of marijuana, which I don't understand the rationale behind it, but it's there and it's it's everywhere. Um, and then we look at things like in cocaine, like levamisol, which is an anti-helminthic, which there are lots of theories as to why it's there. You got to um, cure the cocaine worms. Exactly. Right, for the formation. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, there's many, 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 many different things and many different ways that uh, things can be cut, and not all of them are beneficial to the user. So, right, levamisole cellulitis, very uh, yeah, vasculitis occurs. Um, yeah, very, very nasty. I think, I think levamisole has some psychoactive. Uh, amin, yeah, a metabolite becomes like sympathetic, so maybe they're trying to enhance the effect or. I just, where do they get this stuff? I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely. Amazon. Great, great review. Yeah, Amazon. <laughs> Amazon. Right. <laughs> yeah. So many agents, many things. They can be psychoactive or inert, but usually not good for you. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. I got one for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to decide which one to do first, but we'll do, we'll do a real one first. Um, can I get high from nutmeg? Oh, well, you can. I don't think you're going to like it. But, uh, you're referring to uh, meristocin. Uh, yeah. So nutmeg contains in it a couple of psychoactive uh, substances. We don't fully understand the pharmacology of all of them, just like, honestly, many drugs. Um, but meristocin uh, is metabolized to a... An amphetamine-like compound in the body, and supposedly can cause a sympathetic, uh, you know, toxidrome. Although when you look at the literature, it's a little bit split. There's some actually anticholinergic stuff that also happens. Um, so we we don't know what exactly is the intoxicating substance. And like many plants, it's probably a lot of things. Um, but people have taken larger quantities of nutmeg to induce these psychoactive effects, and generally. Not something that I think a lot of people repeat, but uh, I certainly don't recommend doing it because they are, you know, biologically active compounds, but people can do it. I, uh, for the listeners, I think we actually talk about this in episode, uh, there's one uh, in the Mad Honey episode, um, which I think is episode Ooh. five or six. So uh, one, of the, one of the readers, yeah, uh, one of the listeners sent in a guest that it was nutmeg, Um when it happened to be Mad Honey, but we, we went into a little bit more in depth about that. Toxo here with a factual correction for Ryan's flawed human memory. The episode where Mad Honey is discussed as episode 8. The episode where nutmeg toxicity is discussed as actually episode 6 where cynchonism is covered. Now back to the show. But yes, absolutely. Nice. It's possible. Don't recommend it. I, I think that Mercison, it, like many compounds similar to it, I, is... Um, has some weak MAO uh, properties to it. Um, and I think it's metabolized to MDA or MMDA. Yeah, it's like a phenethylamine, yeah. basically. And Phenyl yeah, I'm sure Shulgin will let us know. Yeah. In well, the comments. Unfortunately, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, yeah. 
Let's see. Yeah, MMDA. MMDA, okay. But good question. Love it. All the yeah. interesting things you find in your pantry. Um, yes. I have another one for you if you've got the time. All right. Okay. So I'll read you the question, and I'm going to read you my favorite answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this question was, are whippets detectable by any drug test? So for the listeners, mm. whippets are nitrous oxide. And then uh, the answer by this user says, only if you're still holding the whippet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe we could talk a little bit more about, uh, what, what, yeah, what do you think? Are whippets detectable? I don't think that we have any certain like therapeutic monitoring for it. Um, I mean, that, yeah, hmm. no test I can think of. I mean, whippets are nitrous oxide, and nitrous oxide is, uh, you know, an inhalational agent um, that, depending on how you do it, the, there are um, a couple of different problems associated with it. So, number one, this is the the uh, occupational hazard for dentists, right? <laughs> so they have the the blue tank. Um, and you know, this is used recreationally to, to make you high. Um, it's not really clear how it does it. It's thought to mediate many different neurotransmitter systems and, and receptors, but I'm not sure if there's any one that predominates, um, and it's used as sort of an anesthetic. And so if you put the mask on with the nitrous oxide and you become obtunded or insensate and you don't take it off then you basically are breathing a non-oxygen um, you know, environment and then you become hypoxic and that's one of the ways of fatality. And that's more of related to how you do it. Um, from the whippet standpoint, you know, I think it's an interesting thing. In, in England, use of this is called nanging, which is a kind of a nanging. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird way of saying it to your tongue. Uh, pushing up against the roof of your mouth, N-A-N-G-I-N-G. Um, and you use you use this to whip cream, right? You don't use carbon dioxide to whip cream. You use that to make seltzer because if you use carbon dioxide to whip cream, you'd spoil it because it's acidic. So this uh -huh. is neutral. That's and so this is why this is used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little, little detective work. It's a little fascinating history. <laughs> But the other toxicity that happens with it is that it leads to a essentially a functional uh, B12 deficiency. So we're circling right back around to our hydroxycobalamin cyanide. It's all vitamins. It it oxidizes the cobalt in in vitamin B12, making it non-functional, and then you wind up with the problems of a vitamin B12 deficiency, even though you have normal stores and normal levels of B12. So you, you get anemia, you get a demyelinating disease, um, uh, and you know this is this is typically in chronic heavy use. There have been a number of cases that we've seen over the years where, like, a roommate has found their their roommate they're unable to walk um, because they have this long track demyelination, and you go, you know, they go into their room, and it's basically the entire floor is covered in these little silver bullets. Because they just go through boxes and boxes and boxes of them. One other one other toxicity of of sort is that in order to get this, this is a compressed gas, and so they have to use a device called a cracker in order to get into the vial. 
if you do this directly into your body, into your mouth or your airway, compressed gas, um, number one, leads to, you know, very cold, right? Mm -hmm. it's, so as it, it's a, a endothermic um, and then also under pressure. So there have been cases of people who have had cold thermal injury to their airway, as well as sort of like dissection along the soft tissue spaces. Um, and those can be, those can be bad. Yikes. Yeah. Like yeah. A barotrauma. Yeah. Yeah. It's barotrauma. Yeah. But I, I don't I, think that you can detect it. Yeah. I don't think there's a detection. I was thinking just like you said, more, you, you can maybe see the manifestations of disease from it, like a macrocytic anemia from your B12 yep. deficiency and, uh, you know, neuropathies from its chronic use. Just like poppers, they both can cause these these oxidating problems from cobalt oxidation. Right. But yeah, exactly. But I I don't I think because nitrous oxide is quickly metabolized, I don't I don't think there's anything you can look for. Um, yeah, I'm not not aware of it. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Cool. That's a cool one. That, All right, this is the one I think we both wanted to ask. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. This yeah. Is a good one. yeah. <laughs> It's an easy answer, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Will my COVID PCR tests show cocaine? So is he asking if, <laughs> if cocaine is in the DNA of COVID? I, it's a uh, it's it's a good question. It it really just highlights that all the different tests that are out there now are very confusing to a lot of people. Yes, I understand that. Um, a COVID, there's a lot of ways to test for COVID. You can do a PCR test. Uh, and by the way, none of them will show cocaine. Probably none of them. Uh, <laughs> maybe somebody came up with the combined cocaine COVID <laughs> test. That'd be amazing. I haven't seen it. 15 but, minutes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the test itself, a PCR basically is a polymerase chain reaction. That's what it stands for. And it uses an enzyme that looks for a little touch of dna from covid and if it's there it will replicate it over and over and over and over so you actually need these base pairs the dna base pairs in a specific sequence for the enzyme to match up with it cocaine has no base pairs so it's not going to right. to uh trigger on a pcr uh you know if you have a large amount of cocaine residue it might interfere with your specimen but it's not going to read uh, sorry, cocaine contaminant cannot read the, the PCR. But right. Good question. Yes. And uh, yeah, depending on your route of cocaine use, you know, there have been, I had a patient where we did, you know, COVID testing. They were there for COVID testing and the swab went through the septal defect that they had in their nose because they had been a heavy cocaine user and they had basically had a septal perforation. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting swab, that, oh, <laughs> but they didn't find the cocaine. That, that is good. Uh, well, I can think of no better question to, to end. Oh, you know what? I was really hoping we would get to the gabapentin serotonin syndrome question, but I think uh, that'll have to be for another time. Only because I wanted to bring up how little we know about the mechanisms of some drugs, and it's so frustrating yeah. to me. That's, That's a good like, one. We're just like, oh, I don't know. This drug, like imagine if you had a really great, like this finely tuned engine in your car, and then sometimes you just add something to it and it, you know, slows it down a lot. And you're like, I don't know how, why or how it does that, but it does. So we're going to keep using it. That's kind of like gabapentin. Yeah. It's pretty frustrating. And a lot of drugs yeah. that we just kind of assign mechanisms to 
that uh, actually have a lot of different mechanisms, like Lasix. Lasix, everyone calls it a diuretic, yeah. but, you know, also increases prostaglandin synthesis, all sorts of interesting. Anyways. I mean, I don't think if there's any better example of that than lithium, right? Oh. We've been using it for 60 plus years and we still don't know how it works. Yeah. And it's the simplest, the simplest drug that exists. But yeah, it's, it's like one of the first elements that existed, I think. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> That's the, well, okay. I'm, I'm going to stay off the soapbox. I, I want to <laughs> leave enough time to thank you for one, for coming on the show thank and you. providing your toxic awesome. insight. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Uh, are there any words of, Talks wisdom you want to leave with um, any incoming medical learners or people out there listening? And yeah, I mean, just really the basic things is just you know um, listen to your patients because they're going to tell you all the information you need to know and examine them because that's going to fill in the gaps where they're not telling you. Um, and it's, I think that will that can get you really really far in, in evaluating somebody. Make sure you actually confirm the respiratory rate. That's it. Yes. <laughs> Respiratory rate 2022. <laughs> if it reads 2022, that's a problem. Right. It's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> to have you on the show. I know you got to get going. So thank you Thanks, so Ryan. much for joining. I look forward to seeing you maybe in NACCT next year. No. Yes, for sure. Okay. Awesome. Thanks again. Wow, Ryan. What a top-notch guest. I know, right? That was a great episode. You might want to summarize some of the things you two talked about for the listeners especially since you tended to ramble. I suppose you're right. If an otherwise normal, healthy person collapses and has a lactate of 20, there's a few toxins that might jump to mind, like inhibitors of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. Now, keep in mind, other things can cause a lactate of 20, including medical conditions like an ischemic gut or someone who just had a seizure moments before you drew the labs. There are even cases of alcoholic ketoacidosis with lactates over 20. And of course, other toxins. Ethylene glycol can get misread as lactic acid when it's metabolized to glycolic acid. Metformin can cause a metformin-associated lactic acidosis, but this is usually delayed. So the combination of sudden collapse coupled with extremely high lactic acid in someone who was previously asymptomatic should really make you think mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation inhibitors like cyanide, sodium azide, zinc phosphide, or even acetonitrile, which does need to get metabolized into cyanide, so might be more delayed. Iron causes severe nausea and vomiting, followed by horrible GI toxicity and eventual liver failure, coagulopathy, and sometimes death. We treat it with deferoxamine in very severe cases, and complications of deferoxamine include hypotension and potential infections from Yersinia enterolytica. Bupropion is a very lethal and difficult-to-treat antidepressant. These days, we see more calls about bupropion than we do with tricyclic antidepressants, and it's the single most lethal antidepressant. It is a derivative of cathinones, like bath salts, and thus it has sympathomimetic toxicity as its toxidrome. We often see delayed seizures due to the delayed release formulations, followed by sympathetic toxidromes and very serious cardiac conduction abnormalities. Treatment is difficult. Sometimes we use lipid or... ECMO, but there's no real definitive strategy. Laundry detergent pods can knock a kid out and cause a horrible aspiration pneumonitis. Many agents are used to cut illicit drugs, either as bulking agents to stretch the supply further, or as a psychoactive additive to try to increase its psychoactive effect. They usually can cause many complications. Some illicit cutting agents include fentanyl, levamisole, 
lactose, and, well, just about anything you can find. Whippets are called nanging in the UK, and you can really only test for it if you catch them with the bottle. You can, however, detect the effects of chronic use, such as macrocytic anemia from rendering your cobalt ineffective, as well as a demyelinating neuropathy. Finally, and most importantly, no COVID test to date. Tests for cocaine. <laughs> okay, I think that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks so much for joining us. We had a great time talking about these topics. If you like what you're listening to, go to wherever you're listening and leave us a five-star review. Please put a comment about what you like most. This helps us share the show with other people who are interested in learning about these topics. Don't forget to follow the show on social media so you know when we release new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at LabPoison, myself at EMPoisonFarmD. Our Instagram is Talks underscore Talk. We have a Facebook, The Poison Lab, and of course, all episodes, free games, lectures, and medical resources are available at www.thepoisonlab.com. We will be releasing the details for our next case. If you think you know what the cause of the toxicity is, I need you to write in to ToxTalk1 at gmail.com so you can take part in our next show. Your guesses make half of the learning. We get to hear your differential on what you think the cause of the toxicity could be. Okay, thanks so much for listening today. Hope you can tune in next time. Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now. <laughs>